Home ownership rates are falling fast, especially among the young and poor. For those without access to the bank of mum and dad, buying a home is now an impossible dream, one which has impacts well into retirement. But what if the government could help level the playing field here? I'm Kat Clay, and with me today is Brendan Coates, Economic Policy Program Director, to talk about his latest piece of research on why it's time for a national shared equity scheme. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks, Kat. It's good to be with you. So long-time listeners of the podcast would have heard about our real estate sagas, but for many, we're actually in quite a privileged position to own our own homes here. What's happening to home ownership across the country? So, Kat, we're in a world today where, well, if you think about 40 years ago, um, most Australians own their own homes. Most Australians, regardless of their income, regardless of their age, had a good chance of owning their own homes. So home ownership rates were pretty steady whether you were wealthy or whether you had a relatively low income. But now that's really changed. Now there's a huge skew in who owns housing in Australia. And so home ownership's been falling particularly fast for young people, but it's been falling across all ages particularly for low-income earners. So if you go back 40 years and you're thinking about 25 to 34-year-olds, the time when most people tend to buy their first house, back in 1981, the poorest uh, 40% of that group, 57% own their own homes. So more than half of low-income Australians own their own homes when aged 25 to 34. Now that number is just 28%. And home ownership's also falling amongst older Australians too of low incomes. So if you're thinking of that same poorest 40%, aged, you know, 45 to 54, so you got 10, maybe 15 years before you retire, that home ownership rate's gone from 71% four decades ago to just 55% today. And that really matters because, you know, today's younger or working age Australians are going to be tomorrow's retirees. And home ownership is falling for this cohort, basically because house prices have exploded in recent years. So, you know, the average house price you know, is now, you know, it used to be two to three times the annual income. We're now talking about seven, eight, nine, ten times the annual income, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney. And so for those without access to the bank of mum and dad as younger Australians, that means you really struggle to get that deposit together. It used to take, you know, the average Australian household earning the typical income about seven years if that to save a 20% deposit um, for that dwelling, assuming they're saving 15% of their income each year. Now it's almost 12 years. And so if you don't have access to the bank of mum and dad for a deposit, then it's increasingly difficult to get into the housing market. And increasingly for older Australians, they might have that deposit themselves, but they won't be in the workforce for long enough to pay off that mortgage by the time they retire. And I mean, a lack of home ownership has significant consequences for older Australians. That's right. So part of the Grattan's work, um, our work on retirement incomes has shown that, look, if you're a homeowner in retirement, even if you're an aged pensioner that doesn't have a lot of other savings apart from your house, you know, you're living a relatively frugal lifestyle, but you're getting by okay. Your rate of poverty is very low, rates of financial stress are really low. But we know that if you're renting in retirement, it's the number one predictor of whether you're going to experience poverty and financial stress. You know, nearly half of all retired renters today are in poverty with incomes below, you know, half the median income. And those numbers will grow as fewer Australians own their own homes. Uh, it's a particularly big issue if you're thinking about vulnerable single people, particularly vulnerable women which are the fastest growing group um, of homeless Australians. And so, you know, we're expecting that those that don't own their own home today, by the time you say 40, 45, you've only probably got 20 years left in the workforce. You're unlikely to buy 
And that means it's an increasing risk that people will experience financial stress and poverty in retirement in the decades to come. It was quite a telling fact when I had to sign off on my mortgage and say that they had to ask me, how will I pay off my mortgage? Because it's likely to be finished when I'm in retirement. And I think that was a callous reminder of getting older every year. But we'll get into the impacts on especially older women uh, in a tick. But when I first heard you were doing research on a shared equity scheme, my first thought was, is that macro related? And I wasn't actually sure what it was. So for the record, what is it and how does it work? So a shared equity scheme essentially involves the government acting as a partner, a co-investor in the house. Uh, So it's basically the government almost acting as the bank of mum and dad for those that don't have them. Now, unlike the bank of mum and dad, the government would be taking out, say, up to 30%, but um, purchasing up to 30% of the property, providing the funds for that. But the government would then also share in any profit or losses that arise um, or any capital gains that arise from in, in the property over time. And so, you know, if the government takes out the maximum 30% uh, equity stake, then it gets 30% of the upside. So if the house price rises by 100 grand, the government gets $30,000 then the government only gets its money back either when the house is sold, which could be a long time into the future, or when the home buyer chooses to buy out the government state, which you can do so at any time. Basically, you know, as long as it's a minimum 5% increments uh, and it's at whatever the market price is at that point in time. So this sort of scheme, we would, we would target it fairly carefully because, you know, it is support to first home buyers you would target it to those earning relatively lower incomes. So we're suggesting $60,000 for singles, uh, $90,000 for couples. That captures, you know, roughly half of Australians as singles earn less than $60,000 and about 25% of couples earn less than than $90,000 a year. Um, And you would have to be using this to be an own occupier. You couldn't be using this as an investment property. So you you get this equity stake from the government. Uh, You're responsible for paying the full rate of stamp duty upfront. You know, as the home buyer, you're also responsible for any maintenance, for any insurance, and it's a requirement you'd have to have insurance in place. Um, but the the quid pro quo is the government wouldn't charge you any rent on the 30% equity stake. So the government's giving up the rental income, which is normally about 2 2.5% um, of the property value, but it's not having to pay maintenance, it's not paying stamp duty. And the person who buys that house has obviously the exclusive right to then buy out the government's stake. And so potentially these kind of schemes already exist in some states. They're often relatively small. So the WA, West Australian government has Keystart, which has been around for a long time and is a very successful scheme that does have um, broad support. Uh, South Australia has something similar. But again, these schemes are often pretty small. And so what's missing is something that's going to help um, a broader set of low-income earners into the market in a way that's really targeted. And that does require you know, federal government intervention. So, I mean, we've mentioned older single women as someone who may benefit from this scheme. Who else benefits from this and what are some of the benefits from that? So, if you're thinking of younger Australians, it's those that don't have access to the bank of mum and dad. Now, under the gov- the federal government has a deposit guarantee scheme in place, so people can borrow with a 5% deposit. Normally, you need a 20% deposit unless you- um, otherwise you have to pay lender's mortgage insurance, which is actually insurance for the bank against the risk that you as the borrower default. It's not insuring you against anything. It's just that you're riskier to a bank because you've got a small deposit. Now, that's going to help some people into home ownership, although the income thresholds for the government's existing scheme are far too high. 
but it's not going to help people who are particularly risk adverse, which is probably going to be those that are on lower incomes that are worried about, you know, interest rates may rise in future and they're worried about how much money they they can sensibly borrow and be able to support themselves. But the big cohort for, I think, whom this really does benefit, it is older Australians. It is probably that cohort of vulnerable women in particular uh, in a couple of ways because there is this cohort out there that does have dollars $100, $200, $250, $300,000 in savings. Often it's people who have separated uh, or it's, you know, people who have been single. They don't have enough to pay off the whole house though. And so they particularly don't have enough, say, if they borrow, use that two hundred grand, they don't have enough to then pay off a mortgage over 30 years because they're only going to be in the workforce for maybe 15, 20 years. And so what this scheme can do is allow them to get into the market to use the asset that they have, the savings they have, know that they've got to borrow 30% less because the government's taking out an equity stake and then expect that they may even use a little bit of their super when they become eligible and entitled to access it at age 60 when, you know, when they hit retirement. Um, the other cohort for whom this would be really valuable is people that separate. You know, Kat, you and I have shared our housing journeys on this podcast over time. One of the things that we found was almost every house that we were looking at that was a family home was a separation. You know, that is one of the hard things about COVID. The really tricky thing with with separations, though, is you've got two people, they have a house, they've got to then break up that house often because it's the largest asset that they've got to split between the two. And then what we find is people often don't manage to get back into the to, to home ownership. So if a woman is in a relationship, separates from their partner, they lose the house, uh, within five years, only 34% of women have then gone on to buy again. Within 10 years, it's only 44%. And so it's not surprising that older women who are separated or divorced are more than three times as likely to rent at age 65 than those that are married um, and twice as likely for men. So what this would do is allow the, the person who separates to compensate for the fact they've lost a whole bunch of equity in their house to instead be able to use the government as a partner to buy a house that suits their needs, particularly if they've still got the kids with them, uh, and then to use that to have a home. Maybe they use a bit of their super retirement there's no requirement that the government that the the person ever buys out the government share. That can just happen at the point when they eventually sell the home, which could could well be well into the future when someone goes into aged care or they do pass away. It's also quite potentially valuable for people that want to downsize. So we've talked before, I think, on the podcast, we've certainly written about it, Grattan, about the fact that people probably need to use the equity in their home more. One way to do that is what's called a reverse mortgage, where you borrow against the house. Um, the government's made some really big goods changes to their, the government home equity release scheme that allows you to do that. But a lot of people don't want to take on debt when they retire. They've paid off their whole house. And so what this can do is if you do downsize, so you sell one house and you buy another, often people don't actually spend much less. They actually buy a house that's better located, maybe a bit newer, uh, but smaller and costs often the same amount. But you could, you could unlock 30% equity by having the government take a 30% equity stake that frees up money to go and do things, to enjoy your retirement, maybe to be ready to, to do maintenance on the house when you need it. Uh, and then obviously the government gets its money back plus any capital gains um, when the house is eventually sold. What you've just said actually taps into some of the other research that we've done. I know Danielle has done a lot of research into this area and Kate and Owen, especially around women's incomes. And I mean, this is just one piece of the puzzle where women aren't earning mu- as much over their lifetime and they're also the big losers often in um, divorces and separations because a lot of women, especially if they have children, they're not working full time, all of those things come into play here. 
Now, I want to know what the costs and risks to the economy are in providing equity. The thing that stood out to me when I was reading this is what if, say, the homes bought under the shared equity scheme don't make money, as is the case with many apartments? It's a good question, Kat, because you know the, this, a scheme like this would expose the federal government's balance sheet to some risk if house prices fall. On the whole, there's a couple of things to say. One is the size of that risk is pretty modest. So we are proposing a scheme that you would start off by capping at 5,000 shared equity you know, loans a year, essentially because it allows the government through the National Housing and Finance Investment Corporation, existing body created by the coalition that you would use to run this, would be, have time to scale up. And then you would evaluate and you might think about expanding it. Maybe it ends up being 10000 a year. Now, if it's 10000 a year, then by 2030, you know, we'd expect that scheme could see the government borrow $12 billion or 0.4% of GDP to finance those shared equity stakes. There's a, a risk to the balance sheet there, but it is pretty small in the context um, you know, of a, a, a $2 trillion economy where the federal government is collecting $500 billion a year in tax revenues. You know. Debt to GDP is sort of sitting around 40%. So you would be adding, you know, one one hundredth to the debt stock by 2030. There is are existing state schemes which um, you know have existed through property downturns. So in, in WA, the Key Start scheme does offer shared equity. WA had falling house prices during this period uh, after the mining boom. Um, and the scheme, you know, it performed reasonably well. In most cases, you would expect that the scheme will make money for the government at least break even and probably make money for the government as long as house prices in the long term rise faster than the interest costs on the government debt that it's issuing to take out those equity stakes. So, you know, over the course of the last, you know, couple of decades, um, you know, house prices have risen by 5.3% a year and the government's bond yield over that period has been 3.84%. So you'd expect that in the scheme, this it probably makes money for the government. Now, the other risk is that if house prices fall and people default, now, default rates for Keystart in WA are very low. Um, and so obviously, you would need to make sure that people aren't taking on loans that they can't afford. Uh, but the government also gets its money back. You know, it gets its proportional share of the money back before the equity holder if there's a default. So if the house sells, then the government gets its money back um, before and any any sort of shortfall is left with the, with the equity holder themselves. I mean, the other big question is, does this just increase house prices as new buyers into the market? It's a great question. It's probably where I sat on shared equity, you know, a few years ago when we were thinking more about it. We've been sceptical of demand-side interventions, and I think a lot of policymakers are sceptical of demand-side interventions. Things like the first-time buyer's grants have had the effect of, of juicing up prices. Now, it's probably that this scheme would have a modest impact on prices. That's why we've designed it in a way that's to mitigate those impacts. That's why we've made it targeted at those, you know, who otherwise genuinely won't be able to get into home ownership. It's why you put price caps on what you could buy. So you would set it up so that you could only buy homes that are probably in the bottom 25% of how of homes in each major city. So, you know, the cap in Sydney may well be something like $800,000, which might not go that far. In Melbourne, it might be $700,000. If we had a scheme that had 10,000 homes a year and every single person would not have otherwise bought a home ever, then you're talking about adding... $5 billion a year to housing demand in a $9 trillion market. Like the impact's going to be fairly small, assuming 10,000 loans a year. And so there, obviously there are lots of other things that the government should do to improve housing supply. Grattan's been banging on about that for years. Uh, but it seems like this is a, an impact that's worth wearing because otherwise this cohort essentially, who are often quite vulnerable, 
don't otherwise have the opportunity of home ownership uh, and otherwise potentially end up in housing stress and rental stress in poverty and retirement. And so that's kind of why it's worth doing. Now, you mentioned at the start of your answer to this question, but I mean, I have had a look at some of your older reports and dug back into the Grattan archives. And in 2018, you were actually quite sceptical of shared equity programs in your report. What's brought about this change right now? So what's basically happened, and, you know, I would encourage people to go look about what we said on in 2018. Um, you know, I think people should think carefully about, um, you know, how, they, how their views change over time. In, you know, in this case, to quote, you know, John Maynard Keynes, when the facts change, you change your mind. And I think in this instance, what's happened is that we're now in a world where it's incredibly clear house prices are going to remain high, irrespective of, um, you know, if we do all the things that we want to do on the sort of on the supply side, reducing demand through changing the tax concessions, and then say that led to house prices falling 20%. Then the number of years it would take for the average person to buy the average house and save for that deposit would fall from 12 years to nine. We're not going to go back to a world where house prices are two to three times annual incomes because we don't expect interest rates to return to the levels that they were back then of, you know, 15, 16%, 17%. So structurally, we're in a world where house prices are going to be higher and that's going to create the deposit hurdle being a bigger hurdle than it has historically. Second, I think our work on retirement has just really exposed this cohort for whom there's not really easy answers. We can raise rent assistance and we should do that. We should boost social housing for those that really, really need it and at risk of homelessness, but the costs of doing that are really high. We should change the pension system settings so that they don't discriminate against renters over homeowners because of the way the assets test works. If all of these things change, then you know the, the importance of homeownership would be a lot less, but we've just structured so much around it. And so even in a world where we do lots of these things, we probably do need something to help particularly older Australians who have some some savings to get into the housing market to buy their own home because it does give them a great sense of security when they hit retirement. Thank you so much, Brendan, for taking us through this innovative idea. If you'd like to read about the proposal in more detail, it's on our website at grattan.edu.au. Grattan is a not-for-profit organisation and all our research is available for free on our website. If you enjoy our podcast or our research through the year, please consider becoming a regular donor at grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. We've got a bumper podcast season coming up for you in the following weeks, so make sure you follow us on your favourite podcasting app. And if you want to talk more about shared equity, join the conversation on Twitter at Grattan Inst and social media at Grattan Institute. As always, please take care and thanks so much for listening. 